0: Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Together, let us respond to God's word. This is part of God's story. Welcome, everyone, if you're visiting. uh, My name's Alex, I'm one of the pastors here. It's really good to have you here. And in actual fact, it's really good to have anyone here because something happened last week that seemed to dwindle attendance a little bit for those of you that are closeted safely in your houses. uh, Good for you, Uh, there were a few of us gathered here. It was an adventure, but uh, it was fun as well. We're in a series on Ruth, and last week we talked about Ruth chapter two being centered around this idea of generosity. Uh, and after talking through that, I went home to about 14 inches of snow uh, and started to shovel my driveway. Uh, and during the course of that shoveling, a couple of neighbors came out and their driveways were still unshoveled but they came over and started helping me with mine. And I'm like, wow, look at this. I toured on generosity and now here's a picture of generosity like in action for me. And so we finished my driveway and I said, thanks for the help, guys. And I went inside and watched the golf. No, I didn't. That would, be, that would be wrong, wouldn't it? I did not do that. Uh, but it was just this joyful coming together of different people helping each other out. We, we got a little sick of each other after about the fourth time shoveling, but at the same time, it was still a good experience uh, to come together. Uh, and so we talked about uh, Ruth chapter two. We're gonna move on to Ruth chapter three, which is confusingly week five. But before we get too far into that, I'd like to set this whole week up by sharing a story of personal victory with you. Uh, A few months ago, for those of you that do something crazy like remember sermons or stories in them, I, I told you about trying to take my kids skiing and having this visual of what it was going to look like when we got to the mountaintop, and it looked something like this. I could picture us all there, the backdrop, all those kind of things, and instead we didn't get that. Instead, we got a window into what Jude uh, looks like uh, when he's mad. And, and it looked like this. I feel like you might be telling this story to a council at some point. just kept showing this video of me over and over again. So this was the goal, right? Uh, we wanted to get this, and instead we got the Jude monster appearing for the day, and it was terrible, and it was miserable, and all of those different things. Uh, and, and so have you ever noticed, like when you go through an experience, it can be hard to believe that it can ever be better uh, than it was that first time. It's ha- hard to believe that you can have a good story come out when it's, it's, it was just bad the first time. Well, I am glad to say this week we had one of those good mountaintop experiences. Now, you will notice that Jude is conspicuous by his absence there. Uh, And that may have led to the good mountaintop experience. And it wasn't all roses, because there were still pictures like this uh, that appeared. Not because of a crash or anything like that, but because she was told she had to wait till her sister had gone down a run first, and then she could go afterwards. She is a... A little speed demon, she likes to get off and and get out there. And so, anyway, we had this wonderful redemption story, if you like. And and it got me thinking, as we get into Ruth chapter 3, and this passage is fascinating. Uh, Is it possible to imagine a new story? Is it possible to imagine a new story? Think about times in your life where you have experienced brokenness, heartache, struggle. Is it possible to believe that something new can come out of that? Think about some of the narratives that we build for ourselves. I have always failed in this way, dot, dot, dot. Is it possible to believe a new narrative may come out of that? Oh, well, the story with my family is this always happens to us. Is it possible to create a new narrative? Oh, people have always told me this about myself. Is it possible to believe a new narrative. Oh, I've been sick before. I know I'm only going to get sick again. Is it possible to believe a new narrative? There are times when we can end up living a life, and this is true whether you're following Jesus or not, where there's the, almost like a narrative that's built. Maybe it's something someone told us. Maybe it's something that we've told ourselves. Maybe it's just the fear thing that we just sang about, this fear of what if it happens again. Is it possible to believe a new story? Now, I would suggest this idea, this question, is key for understanding Ruth chapter three. Now, I've tried to keep this sermon PG-13 as possible, but we're gonna look at some aspects of the Bible that are are probably problematic. We're gonna dip into a couple of passages that are those passages that when people Google weird stuff that's in the Bible, these are the passages you land on. Now, now we're gonna kind of like get over the top of them a little bit and, and we're not gonna delve too deeply into them, But I would just say, like, there are times when looking at this passage is a difficult thing to do. So here we go, Ruth chapter 3. We talked about generosity in chapter 2. What does the story have for us in chapter 3? One day, Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. The word in our English Bible is probably home or something like that. But in actual fact, the Hebrew word is rest. It's this word, uh, manausch which is the perfect blend of man and couch. So if you're trying to imagine like, what rest looks like, it's like guys when you're on the couch and everything's just fine and you're not doing anything. It's Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon. Uh, that is rest. When someone comes to you and says, I have a task for you, I have a job for you, that is not rest, and they are opposites. Uh, this is, I must find for you a place of rest, a place of safety, a place of security, as we've talked about in chapter one, chapter two, Ruth is a widow. She's made this incredibly long journey to a country that she doesn't know, all of these different struggles for her, and Naomi wants to find a place where she's safe long after Naomi is gone. Let's move on a little bit. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Last week, we talked about this encounter between Boaz and Ruth, and it reads very much like this romantic encounter. It feels like the story should go somewhere, except it doesn't. For three months of harvest time, there is no movement in the story. If you want the 18th century romantic novel, Boaz doesn't get down on one knee and propose. There isn't the dream fairy tale ending. The story has not moved along, it's just stuck. And that's probably not a surprise when we look at the details, because think about like in the 1000 the BC version of dating, Ruth, she has a ton of red flags. I'm so glad that I don't have to date in today's world. And those of you who are dating, I sympathize with you, uh, except I don't understand what you feel like. But I've read that there's all of these like dating checklists that you might fill out. And so I just found a couple that were online. He has to be six foot in his socks. He dances like a dervish. I don't know what that is, actually. He has a voice like a bullfrog. Aaron, you would pass, you'd be fine. Um, <laughs> smells literally irresistible and he likes you because you laugh at his jokes. Or how about, has to be attractive, funny, and he must like cats. So that rules out almost every guy that I've ever met because none of us really like cats, but dog people. <laughs> um, there's probably I'm gonna get some emails. That will be the one thing that I'll get emails about today. You said guys don't like cats, what's wrong with you? Uh, but these, there's what you might call dating red flags. There's things that you like, that's a no. As soon as I see that, I, I'm out. Now in the 1000 BC version of this store, of of dating, Ruth has a ton of red flags. She's a foreigner. She came from outside of town. She's been married before, and she couldn't have kids for the 10 years, it seems. And, and so there's a question about whether she can have kids in the future. As Aaron talks us through in week two, having kids in that culture was huge, and especially having male children. A, a, a woman that had provided male heirs was, was she had done her job. There's a question whether Ruth can do that. There's all of these different things that in that culture... Today, it seems to us that those would be crazy things, right? We would say, what's wrong with you? Uh, but, but in that culture... Those are incredibly important things, so there's no, there's no reason to suspect that from Boaz's mind, Ruth is desirable, other than maybe how she looks. And therefore, there's no real surprise that the story just hasn't moved. It's stuck for three months of harvest season, and now the harvest is coming to an end, and the potential for Ruth and Boaz to interact at all is disappearing slowly but surely. And so the question becomes, well, what do we do now? And so Naomi, in her wisdom, says, well, I'm going to move this story along. I'm going to come up with a plan. But as honorable and great as Naomi seems to be as a character at different points, there's some questions about some of her actions that I have in this chapter particularly. Because I would suggest that Naomi decides to move the story along in old ways. She taps back into some things that are rooted back in the Old Testament that that maybe weren't the healthiest but just seem to be the way things happen. So let's look and see what she says. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he is finished eating and drinking." The threshing floor was a place of, let's just say, adult behavior. Think about red light districts and those kind of things. Things happened on the threshing floor that weren't talked about in polite society. It was a group of guys celebrating a harvest. There was lots of drinking. There was lots of partying. And then stuff happened afterwards that, again, we're just going to skip over a little bit. But you know kind of what I'm talking about. So when Naomi says to Ruth, put on your best clothes, she says, take off your widow's garb. Take off the morning clothes that you've been wearing, the black. Take off that stuff and dress yourself up. Make yourself as attractive as possible, and then head down to the threshing floor. And the question for us as a a modern reader is, what is the plan here? What is she thinking about? How is this a good idea? This is not actions that you would think about recommending to your daughter or somebody that you love. And then when he lies down, note the place where he is lying then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Now, here's the problem with this text. Every reader from this culture would know what to expect to happen next because it had happened time and time again in their narratives. Now, we see today adverts all over the place, right? 23andMe, genealogy, all of those kind of things. And it's becoming a little bit more important to us. I happen to have Got an uncle who's researched our genealogy back to the ninth century. Now, the ninth century for you American guys is this time like way, way, way before you know your country existed. But that's when we've rooted back to. And and so it's become a little bit more of a detail that people like to know. People like to know where is my heritage from? You can find out your 17% Finnish or all those different things. As important as it might be becoming now to a 10th, to a thousand BC culture. Hugely important. They could track their genealogy back multiple generations. They knew exactly where they had come from. And that meant you knew all of the good things. And you also knew the bad things. And it meant everybody else knew the good things. But they also know the bad things. And both Ruth and Boaz have genealogies that are, that are a, a problem genealogies that would suggest that this story is going to go where everyone in the culture would think it was going to go. There's the problem of Genesis chapter 19 for Ruth. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in after us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offering, offspring from our father. And we're going to skip over all of the details, but this is the end. Thus both daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Track back to Ruth chapter 1. Where does Ruth come from? She's from Moab. They have this history that says, well, this is how that genealogy works this is how their family operate this is how they do things this is how they make things happen and to us it might seem that the two don't connect but to to a thousand bc culture oh that connects that's absolutely where this story is going to go how about genesis 38 the problem of genesis 38 judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son shelah grows up For he thought he may die, too, just like his brother. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. I need to give that some context for you. Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, has lost two of her husbands, both of them sons of Judah. They've died, passed away. And Aaron brought up this incredible law that was there to protect people thousands and thousands of years ago in Jewish culture. There was a law that said, if a widow, a lady died childless, then the nearest relative's job was to help provide an heir for them. It meant security, it meant good things for their future, all of those different things. Judah is supposed to give his next son to this widow, and he doesn't. He reneges. He holds back on the promise. He doesn't follow through with what he's supposed to do. So Tamar resorts to trickery. She tricks him into bed with her so that he will provide an heir, and she becomes pregnant with His daughter in law, and so let's have a look at what happens here. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb, and she was giving as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out, and he was named. Perez. So hold that name Perez in your mind for just a second. In one of the earlier weeks we looked at Boaz's genealogy and we said right at the end of the story then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said Naomi has a son. They named him Obed. His father was Jesse, the father of David. But that's all we read. There's more to the genealogy and if you're doubting whether the writer of this story has all of this history in mind this is where he starts Boaz's genealogy. In chapter four, we're stealing a little of Dan's passage from next week, that's okay. I don't think he was going to cover this part. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amibadad, Amibadad the father of Nashon, man I'm glad I've rehearsed these names, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. The author, the writer picks out this unknown guy who happens to come from the moment of the lowest point of the genealogy and says this is the family line we're talking about doesn't go back to Abraham, doesn't go back to some of these famous people that they could track the heritage back to. He picks this guy, because this is where the genealogy hits the lowest point. This is where the whole thing breaks down. This is the family of Perez. Boaz comes from Perez, and his line is broken too. So when an ancient audience reads this text and sees this moment where Ruth is sent to the threshing floor, they know exactly what to expect, because both of their families have broken in their past. And the story seems inevitable. And the question for us is this. Will Ruth participate in Naomi's plan? Will she get on board with this? Will she follow through now? Now, what's fascinating is this. To start with, she says, I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do, except she didn't. She doesn't. She does some of the stuff her mother-in-law has told her to do, but not everything, because Naomi's explicit instructions were, go and do whatever he tells you to do. But I would suggest that Ruth chooses to trust that the story will move along in a new way. She chooses to believe that there's a potential redemption of this story. Look what happens. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly and covered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian. Redeemer of our family. She does everything up until the point when Naomi said, do what he tells you to do. And then she tells him what to do. She tells him what to do. She, a foreigner, an outsider, a widow, says to this man, this Chayal, as we looked at last week, this important figure, spread your garment over me. A garment in the ancient culture was a sign of authority. It was a sign of his leading of a family. There's ways that that comes into some of Jesus' story as well. And what she essentially says to him Don't just take me into your bed. Take me into your household. Make me a part of your story. Make me a part of your family. She asks for something that nobody would expect that she would know to ask for. And this idea, this guardian redeemer of our family, it doesn't even apply to her. She's outside of the story. She's a foreigner. None of the ancient laws of Israel said that you get to be part of this guardian redeemer thing. But she, this foreigner, sees the potential for this story to be rewritten in new and incredible ways. And that is wonderful. Think about what comes from these, these stories. The one, this story of brokenness uh, of, of Lot and his daughters. The other, this story of brokenness of a guy that reneges on his promise, who doesn't follow through these two broken genealogies. A foreigner comes into Israel and says, I'm gonna bring healing, not just to my story, not just to Naomi's story, not just to Boaz's stories, but to the family's stories. I'm gonna create a new narrative where nobody believed that a new narrative was possible. And so the author shapes excitedly the fact that from this union, from Boaz and Ruth, will come this, this person, David, who was so central to Jewish history and thinking. And they're excited about that, but they don't even know the part of it. We get to sit on the New Testament side of this. We get to say that eventually from this lineage, from this moment, comes Jesus and his story. The story is incredible in its ability to take broken narratives, broken stories, and say there can be a new story that comes out of that brokenness. And look at Boaz's incredible response to Ruth. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. In chapter two, we talked about how the word uh, hesed was used about Boaz in his actions towards Ruth. It was kindness. He says, no, no, no. It's you that has shown hesed, faithfulness, kindness, favor to me. You're the one that has been good, not me. And then little further, you are a woman of noble character. All of the people of my town know it. Now, whether he was telling the truth, whether they all did know that is up for debate, but certainly he has come to see it interactions. And after chapter two tells us that, that Boaz is a child, this man of valor, he says, no, 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 you're the child. You're the woman of valor. Boaz looks at Ruth and all of her sort of history, all of her weaknesses, all of the reasons that she's not the hero of the story. And he says, Ruth, you are the hero of the story. You are the one that God is using to move this story forward. You are the one that is shaping this story in new and incredible ways. And then we're going to sketch through this last part of chapter 3 before we draw out some Jesus implications. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Now lie here till morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he also said, bring me your shawl you're wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. Boaz, make sure that Ruth leaves before anyone can see that she was there. Think Pride and Prejudice. Think any sort of romantic novel. The idea that a woman would have been in that place would have killed her honor, so, so ingrained was this in people's minds even till a hundred years ago that just touching another man in public was dishonorable. There was this level of intimacy that just wasn't acceptable to a young woman. And that stretches back into history, for a thousand, in 1000 BC, for a woman to go to the threshing floor, that was dishonor. And we now know why. We know because written in the history where bad things happened in those situations. Ruth walks into a terrible situation and sees it redeemed for good. She walks into a a story where she has no reason to believe that the narrative can be rewritten. And because of her actions, it is rewritten. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and asked, How did it go, my daughter? What has this night looked like for Naomi? What does it cost her to sit there thinking, what is happening to Ruth? To sit there maybe praying, maybe tears, maybe fear, maybe struggle. But this moment where she says, well, how did it go? And the story that comes back is far greater than she could possibly have imagined she would hear. Then she told everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley. The ephah that he gave her in chapter 2 was a lot. This is a fortune. This is more than anyone could imagine. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. The passage starts with Naomi's dream that Ruth might find a place of rest. And it ends with the idea of rest that this man now will not stop working until he has figured this situation out. The story is redeemed because Ruth acts in a way that nobody else in that culture would have acted. She sees a better story is possible. It's an incredible faith step, and one that I think we can learn from. We, as I said earlier, have all of these different struggles that come up. I would ask you the question, what constructed identity have you accepted? This isn't down to whether you're following Jesus or not particularly, this affects all of us. What narratives have you accepted into your life that maybe aren't healthy at all? What narratives is it that fear drags up time and time again? Things that people have said over you, things that you have said over yourself, those struggles that you've said. And, And here's a question, is Jesus able to offer a new story? Is Jesus able to offer a new story? We live in a society where so many people are broken by their, in their identity. So many people are hurting. So many people are wounded. And wherever you are in that journey, what I would say to you is this. Your story is not unique. You are unique. You as a person, God made you and he made you unique and he made you special. But your story isn't unique. There are other people that have been through what you're going, maybe not all of the combinations, but the things that you struggle with, they are not unique to you. But all of those narratives that we build for ourselves, that become our identity, my family always end up this way. I always fail in this area. That has always been a problem for me. I'm just not good enough, I'm not very smart, I'm not very desirable. All of those different narratives that we can build that come up time and time again, those things take a lot of faith to believe that they can change. A lot of faith. And what I love about the Jesus story is Jesus, in the way that he operated in the world, was wonderfully good at breaking down some of those narratives. I'd love to pull this story into the Jesus era for a few moments. So let's look at Luke chapter 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learn that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume, and she stood behind him at his feet weeping, and she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him And what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. To this Pharisee, this woman's current actions mean nothing. The fact that she is doing a wonderful thing means nothing. All he cares about is her history. All he cares about is the construct that society has given, the things that it has spoken over. Oh, you'll always be like this. There is no potential for you to change. And yet to Jesus, he sees this in completely different ways. I'm going to skip over the middle part where he gives this incredible lesson on the level of forgiveness and how it affects you, but, but this is how he ends the story. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. That was a very traditional cultural thing to not give anyone water to wash their feet. That was an insult. That was to show disrespect, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them away with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, a traditional greeting of the day, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil oil on my head, the sign of authority and anointing, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then watch his dialogue with this woman. I find this stunning. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has created a new narrative for you. Your faith has created the potential for a new story. But here's the moment of tension. She has to decide whose narrative she believes. She has to decide, does she believe her own history or the ways that she has failed or the ways that she has been broken or the ways she has sinned or the ways she has acted poorly? She can believe that narrative. She can believe the narrative that the society will tell her, you're a sinner, you're a bad woman, you are a broken person. Or she can believe what Jesus tells her. And it's very easy for us to sit here and assume that it was obviously easy to believe what Jesus tells us. But there are so many things all through scripture that that God tells us about ourselves. And I would suggest that you and I struggle to believe them regularly and often. This isn't a separation between those following Jesus and those not. In so many ways, we struggle to believe the good things that God says about us. And we believe the bad things that fear would tell us. The bad things our own hearts would tell us. The bad things other people would tell us. This woman has this moment where she says, do I believe his narrative or do I believe my own narrative? Do I believe his narrative or do I believe the world's narrative? And it's this moment of tension as she goes off into life and she's, she's got this choice in front of her. What constructed identity do you return to? What thing did you lay down at some point as you started to follow in the way of Jesus and yet you pick up again so often? I pick up again so often and say, no, this thing still applies. Maybe it's a health thing. Oh, at some point I'll get sick because my parents did. Maybe it's a parenting thing. Oh, my parents were never very good as parents and so inevitably I'll end up in this way as well. I won't be a good parent either. Man, the good news is God's grace is bigger than your DNA. There is, there is more to your life than what, what your history tells you. There are so many things that we end up going back to. That God says to us, let it go. That's not yours to hold anymore. I would love to believe that just because we started following Jesus, we would be able to let go of all of those things. But, but the writers of the Bible just tell us that's not the case. This is Paul, the, one of the first followers of Jesus. He wrote letters all over the place to different churches that he'd started. And this is what he says to this church in a, a place called Galatia. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not get your, let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. We just talked about that, that idea about slavery. We sang about it. And, and Paul says to this church, don't go back. You're made to be free. You're made to be alive. You're made to be all of these good things that your father has spoken over you. But still, the temptation is to go back. I love the, the British comedian, Russell Brand. I just find him a fascinating character. And definitely, some of his language is maybe stuff that I wouldn't use on stage, definitely. Uh, but this is one of his quotes. This is the age of addiction, a condition so epidemic, so all-encompassing, and so ubiquitous that, unless you are fortunate enough to be an extreme case, you probably don't know that you have it. He pulls all of this into the microcosm of of the language of addiction. And he talks about the fact that actually some of the luckiest people, in some ways, are the people that have extreme addiction, because they're willing to face it, they're willing to own it and acknowledge that it exists, And yet for so many of us, we have addictive tendencies that we don't even realize that we have. In so many ways, we have brokenness that we don't even realize that we have. And we go back to these things that we don't even realize we have. And our Father says to us, I have a better story for you that can Be a new narrative. And and while I love to give you something practical to do in sermons and to take away and say, yes, last week we talked about generosity, go and be generous, take some of your income and give it away to different great causes. Sometimes it's not about doing something, it's about trust. Can you believe this story? Can you believe a better story? All of the things that you might do, all of the action steps, they don't matter if we can't believe this better story that our Father speaks over us. There can be new narratives. This is the final passage of of one of the final chapters of of the Bible in a book called Revelation. And, And this is the way that it describes the culmination of everything. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I am making everything new. Jesus' final word to us, I am making everything new. And the writer of this book has a choice when he uses the word new. Because the Greek language has two different words for new. It has a word neos, which means brand new, created out of nothing. If I were to create something here and say, there it is, it's new, it's brand new. And then there's this other word, kinos, which means new of its kind, newer of a type never seen before, new in a particular way, changed, transformed, maybe even renewed would be a good word word in our English language. And this writer has the two options. Which is he gonna use for, for new? And he doesn't use created fresh out of nothing. He uses renewed, made special in a new way, renewed. And that to me is a wonderful joy. I think our Father loves creating things out of old things. I brought this pot for you and I brought this kettlebell And I don't know how strong this stage is, and we're going to find out. And I brought a blanket because I like safety. Actually, I don't like safety. But I have this theory that so many of us in our lives, the way that we experience different things, it leads to a feeling of brokenness. And sometimes these things, whether it's grief, whether it's tragedy, whether it's a word someone spoke over us, whether it's a piece of family history or whatever, they feel like they hit us, like something like... And the the, the feeling of it ricochets throughout our whole of our lives. It's this sense of brokenness. It's this sense of we're not properly put together. And then I read about this fascinating Japanese art called kintsugi. It's the art of taking broken china pottery and putting it back together with gold lacing. They take the gold, the molten gold, and they use it to fit the pieces back together. And, and the incredible thing about this art form is this when it's done, it's worth far more than it was when it started. The renewed thing is far more special than the original thing. It seems like our father loves to take things that are broken and bring renewal. It seems that his heart is for those that are lowly and broken and says, I am not enough, I don't add up. But the thing that we need to give him is a belief that our story can be different. If we can't believe that, then the story can't move. We have to believe that can be a better story. I'm going to invite Aaron and the worship team up, but we're going to look at this as a final contemplation. Does Jesus offer a new story? And how might he include us as a church, you as an individual, me as an individual, in that process? How is God making you new? What are the constructs that you have believed about yourself that he says there is something new to believe In what ways is this world broken? And we've seen examples of it tragically this week with several more shootings. In what ways is he calling us as a community to work towards a better world? Our father said he will make all things new. And we are invited into that story. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your presence here with us. Thank you for the way that you love us. For those of us that find ourselves outside of that story, we're asking questions about faith. We're not even sure what we believe about how the world works. Thank you that you invite us in. You offer us this new story and say, it's free, come in, the water is good. For those of us that have been on a journey with you for a while, I know from my experience how often I go back to old stories about myself. How often I believe things that were spoken over me. How often I believe the worst about myself when others see the best. Thank you that you speak good things over us. For my friends who have tried and failed who feel like they've tried to step into a new story time and time again. I ask for the faith and the courage to do it another time, to step towards you, believing that you are good and you say good things about them. I pray for that new faith in a better story. Thank you, Jesus, that the Easter story is one of you moving a a bad story into a, a new and great story that low point of death into that high point of resurrection. As we limp as a group of people, individually with our own struggles, as we limp towards Good Friday, move us into the light of Resurrection Sunday. We are people of the resurrection. We are people of new life and new hope. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.